0: This morning we'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 again. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We'll look again at verse 5 and we'll look again at uh, that phrase, Love seeketh not her own. 1 Corinthians 13. Let's read verse 4 and 5 together. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4 and verse 5. Charity suffereth long... And is kind, charity envieth not, charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil. Last week we looked at the fact that charity seeketh not her own. Christian love does not seek her own. And what we said about that is that the scriptures teach us that if we are to love, we are to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. that as we seek the best and most profitable life for ourselves, that we also ought to be seeking the best and most profitable life for others. The Christian believes that the best and most profitable life comes from obeying the word of God, comes from knowing what God has said and doing it, and that the best life that a person can live who is a child of God is to live his life according to what God says is true and right and good. And so he seeks the same for others, he seeks the same for his brothers and sisters, and he seeks the same for his neighbors that are lost. And uh, not only are we interested in making sure that our brothers and our sisters in Christ are living the best and most profitable life they could live, but brethren, when we look out into a lost world and see this destruction and uh, the ultimate damnation of sin And sinners who do not repent and do not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Something in our heart stirs us to do what we can to bring the gospel to them. And that's what we saw last week. Last week we saw that the first and best example of living your life for others is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is and shall be always the first and best example in whatever it is we endeavor to do as a Christian. Whatever it is. And so he lived his life. On this earth. Seeking to do the will of his father. We looked at that last week. In Rome, in John chapter 8 in verse 29. Uh, he that sent me is with me. The father hath not left me alone. For I do always those things that please him. And that doing always those things that please him, resulted in him going about doing good to both sinners and to those who were Christians. His love caused him to seek out his God, always doing what his Father, and at the same time to seek to serve others. He came not to minister unto himself or to be ministered to but to minister to others. And his love in us does the same thing. As If we live a life based upon Christian love, it will be a life lived serving others. It will not be a life focused on yourself. It will be a life lived serving others. And one of the Things over the years that I've been in the ministry that is so uh, burdensome to my heart is the self-focus of people who say that they're Christians. Their happiness, their prosperity, their health, their this, their that. Nothing wrong with us being concerned about ourselves. But if that's all that you have, um, then... You've missed something of what is true of Christianity. Jesus Christ is our example of a life lived for the sake of others. And then we saw in uh, the scriptures that the Apostle Paul also was an example and set forth as an example for us of a life lived for the sake of others. And we saw in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 33 where the Apostle Paul said, even as I please all men and all things, not seeking my own profit, not seeking my own welfare or benefit, not seeking my own spiritual welfare and my own spiritual benefit focused only on me and my soul, but the profit of many that they may be saved. The spiritual welfare of others, he becomes the example then of us seeking out The spiritual welfare of others. And then we look at Timothy. And Timothy also became an example and and is set forth in the scripture as an example in the book of Philippians, chapter 2, in verses 19 through 21. But the focus particularly is on verse 21, where the apostle Paul says of Timothy, uh, says of those, that of some of those that are in the ministry, for all seek their own. Not the things which are Jesus Christ's. And he's talking about people in the ministry. But he says, not so with Timothy. Timothy is like-minded with me. He's not seeking his own. He is seeking the things that belong to others. And then we looked last week, the fourth thing we looked at is that, um, and this is the statement that I made last week, that nowhere will this type of lifestyle be more evident than in a life that is lived for the sake of the spread of the gospel and for the salvation of the lost. This shows up in Christians and it shows up in local churches. Either they are focused on the spread of the gospel or they are focused on something else. And when Satan wants to get a church sidetracked then he throws in a handful or a dozen or two dozen different uh, issues that the church gets focused on, and all of their energy, all their time, all their money spent on these things and not on their efforts for the spread of the gospel. We looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, uh, for chapter nine on that, and then beginning in verse 19 through 23, 1 Corinthians Chapter 9, beginning in verse 19. For though I be free from all men, the Apostle Paul says, writing to this local church, I have made myself servant unto all that I might gain the more. You see, the purpose is to gain. To gain the souls of others. Verse 20, he says, And unto the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews, to them that were under the law, as under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law, Verse 21, 1 Corinthians nine twenty one, To them that are without law, as without law, then putting in the princes being not without law to God, but under the law to Christ, that I might gain them that are without law. To the weak became I as weak, that I might gain the weak. I am made all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. And then verse 23, and this I do for the gospel's sake, this I do for the gospel's sake that I might be partakers thereof, and notice the last two words, with you, with you, that I might be partakers in this matter of spreading the gospel with you, this local church. All this example that I am setting before you about my life and about my uh, way of thinking and the things that I did for the sake of the gospel, I did it so that you could understand that those who actually genuinely love people are focused on the spread of the gospel. Those who genuinely love people are are focused on the lost a church that is focused on the gospel is a church focused on loving. Love does not seek her own. Love is not about us, not about me, not about you either. Love is about seeking out, outside of ourselves, seeking others. And so that brings us back to where we left off last week. That was the last point I made last week. If that is true, and I believe it is true, or I would not have said it before you this morning, that love not seeking her own is demonstrated in love being engaged in the spread of the gospel. Love being engaged in seeking lost. If that is true, then love will motivate us to pray for lost sinners. Romans chapter 10, verse 1. Paul writes, Romans 10, verse 1, brethren, my heart's desire, you see, where his heart is, where his charity is, where his love is, my heart's desire and prayer, they're connected. We cannot say that we love as God love without praying for lost sinners. <laughs> we cannot say that. And, uh, and I've been in a lot of prayer meetings since May of 1979 when I went in the ministry, a lot of prayer meetings. Not every one of them was focused on the lost. Sometimes there wasn't any prayer at all regarding the lost. Sometimes all the focus was just on the people. And there's nothing wrong with praying for the sick. We got a a, a text this week. Uh, I think uh, Susan sent it out and said, pray for Nancy. She's feeling weak. She's having trouble. She's and, and and we did. My wife and I stopped and we prayed. Nothing wrong with that. In fact, I think we ought to be praying one for another. How many times have I sent out a text to you and ended it with, brethren, pray one for another? Over and over and over again, I've exhorted that. But in the end, while we're praying for one another, we need to be praying for the lost. We need to be praying for our missionaries. We need to be praying for other fields that we could look at. We need to be praying for our own community, that the lost might be saved among us. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer uh, to God for Israel. Now, if you understand anything about Romans chapter uh, 9, 10, and 11, you know that the Apostle Paul has uh, written those chapters as evidence that a judicial blindness has been brought on the nation of Israel. Blindness in part, that's what he says, until the times of the Gentiles. And knowing that, knowing that God has brought a judicial blindness upon this nation, what is his heart? My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel. What is his heart? I'm going to pray for them to be saved. Because who can tell what God might do? Our nation is under judgment, who can tell what God might do? I believe the world is under judgment, but who can tell what God might do? Who can tell? We've had doors shut for us in India, but other doors are opening. When God shuts a door, and he does shut them sometimes, and forbids the gospel going into some areas, he opens another so that the gospel can go there. Study Acts chapter 16 and see... God hindered Paul from going to Asia. And then God hindered him to going to Bithynia. And then God opened the door for him to go to Europe into Macedonia. And God did that. And later on, God opened the door for Asia. Always in God's time. Always according to his purposes. God shuts the doors. God opens the doors. But what is the heart of a child of God? We want to see the saved. We want to see the lost saved. We want to see sinners saved. So that motivates us to speak to people. God gives us opportunity and open doors. We we speak to people or we give tracts to people. It also motivates us to give our time and energy and our money toward financing the spread of the gospel. Nowhere in all the scripture is there a better example of a group of Christians who were so in love with the Lord Jesus Christ and so selfless, not selfish, but so selfless that they would give themselves for the sake of the gospel than the church at Philippi. So I want you to go over there with me in Philippians chapter 4. If there is a church in, in all of the New Testament, besides the church at Philadelphia, in the book of Revelation, which we know little of, except the few verses in the book of Revelation. If there is a church at all, it is this one that gives us an example of true Christianity in action when it regards loving sinners and sacrificing on their behalf. Now, in 1 Corinthians 14, I mean, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 4, verse 19, the Apostle Paul says to them as he's closing out this epistle but my god shall suppo- shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus i'm said first corinthians philippians 4:19 i'll wait for you as soon as i read it i said i think i said first corinthians i'm still fixed over there in first corinthians 13 the book of philippians chapter 4 Verse 19. Let's read the text. But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Now, this verse is just jerked out of its context on a regular basis by all kinds of Christians. My God's going to supply all my need. And they uh, talk about this need or that need and They don't talk about how they came into the need. A lot of Christians are in need because of debt. Get out of debt, you won't be in need. And uh, a lot of Christians are in need because of the way they foolishly handle their finances. They are not wise. But that's not the case here. That's not the case here. How did this church, this church at Philippi, come into the place of having financial need so that the apostle had to write to them and encourage them that in the middle of their necessity, God would supply for them. How is it that they came to that place? He is not talking about their wants or their desires, but he is talking about the things they need. Well, I've always exhorted you from the First time I've stood in this pulpit to keep the verses that we study within the context of where they're found. And nowhere is this more important than this verse. It's often jerked out of its context and made to say anything. The same way with the verse, my God shall strengthen you. Always just jerked right out of, God, out of context. And, and so, but look again in Philippians 4 at the context Let's go back up and see where this verse is found. First, let's go all the way up to verse 14. Notwithstanding, yeah, uh, notwithstanding, you have well done, speaking to the church, the word ye is plural. You have well done that you did communicate with my affliction. The word communicate here does not mean, as the English word often does, to speak. Instead, it is a word that means that they involve themselves in the means of, of helping Paul in his affliction. He was in affliction for the gospel's sake, as we'll see. Verse 15. Now, Ye Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, and this is his second missionary journey where God directed him into Europe. When I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. When it came time for me to leave Macedonia and take the gospel to another place, nobody supported me. No one did. But you did. You were the only church that supported me in the, gospel, in the spread of the gospel. Verse 16. For even in Thessalonica, you sent once and again unto my necessity. I'm in need. Financial need Because of my engagement in the spread of the gospel, I am in need and you sent not just once, but twice you sent. Now remember, Paul is not alone in this. Many missionaries today are just on the field alone, but Paul is not alone. He has a whole company of people. There are times in the scriptures where he went to work and made money for the whole company of people. That were with him in the spread of the gospel. You sent onto my necessity, not because I desire gift, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. But, now he says, I have all and abound. He uses the word abound in uh, contrast to necessity, two verses earlier. I am no longer in necessity, I am abounding. Um, um, I, that, that I may abound to uh, that above all. Let me start over. Verse eighteen. But I have all and abound. I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you. And then he says, an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well pleasing to God. They had not sent their tithes, but they had sent a special sacrifice for the gospel. He calls it a sacrifice, acceptable and well-pleasing to God, and then says, my God shall supply your need. Now, here's the question I asked in the beginning as I started reading these verses. Why are they in need? Why are they in financial need? Well, if you read the context with me and grasped what Paul was saying, they're in financial need because love seeketh not her own. They're in financial need because they look out away from themselves and said, that man needs help and we can help them. But in order to do that, we put ourselves in need. And then Paul writes to them, now that you're in need... Don't worry, God's going to take care of you just like he took care of me. I know a few churches that live like this. And yet it's so biblical. In America, we think putting ourselves in need for the sake of the gospel. That's not the thinking of Americans, is it? Not the thinking of Christians in America, sacrificing for the cause of Christ. Many, many do that. Many do that. But not all the way to the place of need. And so, and yet it was the practice of the church at Philippi that they looked at their bank accounts and said, for the sake of the gospel, we're going to do this. And they didn't do it individually. They did it as a church. They did it as a church. Ye, the word is plural. Their need, mentioned in verse 19, was a need created by their own hands because they gave to see the gospel spread. There's something about that that just humbles me. I, I believe that every word of God should be something we should contemplate and consider. I don't believe God calls everyone to do this. But he certainly called this church to do it. And that verse jerked out of its context in verse 19 means nothing to most of the people that have it on their lips because it's not a need created because they sold everything, gave everything until they themselves found themselves in need. I think it can be used. There's applications of it. But the actual interpretation of it It's critical for us to grasp the teaching of what it means that love seeketh not her own. Love is not selfish, it is selfless. Love motivates us not only to give financially, but to give ourselves for the sake of spreading the gospel. Go over with me to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians in chapter 5. Now, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And I want to begin reading in verse 11. I'm going to read down to verse 20. So there's a lot of verses. And I don't want you to get caught up in chasing this rabbit or that rabbit as we go, Oh, I wonder what that means. I don't want that. But I want you to see the context of a couple of verses here. Now, The Apostle Paul, again, writing to the church at Corinth concerning his testimony and way that he lived his life for the sake of the gospel. Okay? And exhorting them to do the same thing. And he starts out in verse 11 by saying, Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord. The judgment of God coming upon sinners is a motivation in the spread of the gospel. Love is a motivation in the spread of the gospel. Our love for Christ, our love for the gospel, and our love for sinners is a motivation in spreading the gospel. But Paul is also motivated by the fact that he knows that hell is real. Hell is not just a doctrine to him. It has impacted his way of life and I've said this in, in many messages since being in this pulpit, in many messages since being in the ministry, but in many messages since being in this pulpit, that the doctrine that we believe should impact our lives. It is not something that we carry here, but it is something that changes us. And the doctrine of hell changed the Apostle Paul. Knowing the terror of the Lord what happens? We persuade men. We persuade men. The doctrine of divine election and the doctrine of the sovereignty of God in relation to the salvation of sinners did not keep the Apostle Paul from persuading men that they needed to repent and believe the gospel. And if it keeps us from doing so, we have a misunderstanding of that doctrine. Knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest unto God. I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. I, my life is made manifest to God. The things that I do for the gospel, God knows about, but I want you to know about them too. I want you to know about them too, for we commend not our sin selves again unto you, but give you occasion to glory on. But give you an occasion to glory on our behalf that ye may have somewhat to answer them with glory in appearance and not in heart. I'm not going to open up that verse too deeply here, but the apostle Paul was um, was was considered not an apostle by some in the church at Corinth and they refused to have him come by and preach to them because they didn't consider him a true apostle and there was division in the church over it. And there were some who could glory in what God was doing in his life from their heart. They knew what God was doing with him. For whether we be beside ourselves, it is, a, it is to God or whether we be sober, it is for your cause. Verse 14, 4, this is a reason that we're doing the things that we're doing. The love of Christ constraineth us. Now Paul moves from the terror of the Lord, persuading men on the basis of the fact that they're getting ready to go to hell, to the love of Christ has constrained me. The Greek behind the word constrained here is a powerful word. It means it has laid hold effectually upon the Apostle Paul. The love of Christ for Paul, the love of Christ for sinners, has laid hold on Paul so effectually that it has taken control of him. It is not a word that simply means Christ's love for me has sort of stirred me up a little. No, it is not about being stirred up a little. This has laid hold on him. So that it has a grip on him. So that it has impacted his life. It has constrained him. Constrained him to do what? To be involved in spreading the gospel. For the love of Christ constraineth us because we thus judge if one died for all then we're all dead. And he died for all that they which live should henceforth should not henceforth live unto themselves but unto him which died for them and rose again. The love of Christ has constrained me that if Christ died for me, my life doesn't belong to me anymore. And that is a doctrine not heard in most churches, including Sovereign Grace Baptist churches. Most churches preach a gospel where you can walk an aisle or whatever, and even Sovereign Grace Baptist churches that God is God saved you. And what a glory that is we're going to have in heaven one of these days. But what about here, preacher? Well, let's let's talk about the love of Christ. No, No, let's talk about you've been bought with a price and you're not your own anymore. And you no longer have the right to live for yourself. Love seeketh not her own. Wherefore, henceforth, know we no man after the flesh, yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now, henceforth, know we no man, or know we him no more, not in the same way as we knew him when we met him. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, here's the conclusion, therefore, when you see a therefore in the scripture, stop and ask yourself, what is it therefore? Okay, you ever heard that before? Of course you have. I I, I didn't coin that phrase, but I heard it as a young Christian. I said, that's good advice. Therefore, what? If any man be in Christ is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. The gospel has changed you. It has changed you. And it is in the process of changing you. And uh, then he goes on, and all things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and, here's his second point, hath given to us a ministry of reconciliation. Now, he doesn't say given to me, does he? he a, God has given to us. He's writing to a church and he says my testimony has had an influence from you and the love of christ has constrained me and moved me in the direction that i'm going now god has given us something to do he has given us a ministry of reconciliation to wit to this end that god was in christ reconciling the world unto himself not imputing their trespasses unto them and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation now then we are All of us are ambassadors for Christ as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ did be ye reconciled to God. He's writing to a church where he has a question in his mind about whether or not they are genuine or not. Comes back at the end and says he knows that they are are true because they have repented. And says now God has given unto me this ministry but he's also given it to you. Every church has been entrusted with a ministry of reconciliation. That's gospel-spreading ministry, gospel-preaching ministry. This kind of life is lived in light of the understanding that because of the great love that Jesus Christ had for me as a sinner, when he died for me as a sinner, when he purchased me for himself, I am now no longer my own and I have a responsibility for the gospel that has been entrusted to me. There hasn't been a church that I have ever pastored from the first one until this where I have said to them, not said to them, God has entrusted you with some truth. What you do with it is very important. What you do with what God has entrusted you is very important. How you handle your affairs as a Christian is very important because it reflects on the gospel. It reflects on what God does in the life of a child of God. Everything about what we believe reflects upon what God does in the life of a child of God. It has, God has changed them. They're a new creature. And they are no longer their own. And I know that not everyone who says they're a Christian lives like they are no longer their own. And sometimes those who say they're Christians and do live as though they are no longer their own slip into a time when they do live selfishly. I know that. But I also know this, that grace is effectual. That's what this church believes. It gets the job done. And if you're genuine and if you're true, God is going to be working in you if you have erred. Turn to the right hand or to the left. My life is owed to him. His love for me. My life must be poured out in service to him. However it is, that works out in real time. I'm not always sure. But I know this much. I owe him. My life and no one else. And the same is true of you. The same is true of you. You owe him your life if you're a Christian this morning. And so God has said in His Word love seeketh not her own, it doesn't focus on me. Love is about who God is, about who Christ is, and about what responsibility he has given us as a church. It looks out of ourselves for others. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we bow before thee and thank you for your